0: The ancient
1: land of Israel. Alan D. the like.
0: An evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country. A testimony to the truth of uh, the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. The defining event in the New Testament
2: story is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' own words, commitment to the
0: reality of his resurrection is a measure of one's faith in God. It's a statement of the power of God, his ability to overcome even death itself. But along with that, the resurrection of Jesus was also a declaration by God himself of his love for us It was God's way of saying, I love you. I love you enough to suffer with you and I love you enough to grant you the power to overcome even death itself. We don't know for sure where Jesus Christ was crucified or buried or raised again from the dead, but there is a place right outside the city wall of the old city of Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb that's certainly a lot like that place. It's a place where we can go to remember and to understand the greatness of God's love for us. spent about two weeks traveling all over this very beautiful country every place we went in a sense pointed us here it's a place that's been set aside for people like us to come to remember behind me is a rock-cut tomb with a place where a stone rolled a place that beautifully reminds us of what it was like where jesus came to finish his work here on earth. So we come here to visualize what that was like. I'd just like to focus your thoughts on several small aspects of the great work that God accomplished. The first is that on this place, Jerusalem, out of all the places in the world, God chose to come to complete a promise that he had made to Abraham 50, 60 miles south of here. God said to Abraham, someday in my time, in my place, I'll shed my blood for your sins. And he walked barefooted on that blood path in symbol between those cut up animals as a way of saying, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the price. We read from Matthew. Jesus had been condemned. He'd been brought through the city streets felt the crush of people on the busy day, the shopping day, which it was then. He stumbled, someone else had to carry the cross, and then he's brought to a place outside the city gate, to a place of execution, and he's nailed to a cross, an absolutely brutal way to die. From the sixth hour till the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If I can put that in more everyday English, what Jesus said is, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? There he hung, forsaken by people And forsaken by his father. When some of those standing there heard this they said he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest said leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And the people stand around and they watch as the life of Jesus drips away. Jewish tradition and Jewish writers that at three o'clock in the afternoon, the afternoon sacrifice is made. The priest climbs the pinnacle of the temple and he blows the shofar. And everybody in hearing distance, certainly in this place, hears the shofar and knows that at that moment the lamb dies for the world. For many years that had been practiced, maybe since the time of Moses, at three o'clock. and As Jesus hangs here and the time moves on, three o'clock arrives. And amazingly, the Bible says at the ninth hour, three o'clock, at the moment when the lamb is killed for the whole nation, Jesus looks up to heaven and he says, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. They can almost picture the whole city busy like it is now. Suddenly the shofar blows, and those who believed in that God stopped a moment. And in the quiet, the Lamb of God dies at the instant of the sacrifice. profound way of describing for us what it was that Jesus Christ came to do. And he died. Then it came time for burial. Many tombs around here in the city of Jerusalem. Tombs like this one were very very expensive. took a lot of work to make a tomb like that. You can imagine what kind of an investment somebody had. In the Old Testament God says don't mix things that aren't alike. Don't mix two kinds of seeds. Don't mix two kinds of animals in pulling a plow. Don't mix a believer and an unbeliever in marriage. That also means that in your tomb, you can't mix unrelated people. If I have a tomb and you are buried in it and you're not related to me, that tomb is no longer clean. I can no longer use it. So there was a man who had a tomb. It's intriguing that the Bible says no one had ever been put in the tomb. The moment Joseph put Jesus in the tomb, he had given the tomb away. Because he could never use it again. I want you to think about this unknown person that we simply know from that tradition who took his tomb worth many thousands of shekels and said, because of my love for Jesus, on the spur of the moment, without a second thought, he said, it's yours. And I'd like to think that as we walked through all this country, and we thought about God walking the blood path and his promise that someday he would come to do that for you and for me, would lead us to the same kind of act of being willing to say, God, whatever I have, at this moment, it's yours. Fortunately, Friday wasn't the end. Sunday's coming. Let me read from Matthew again. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples look in. People, there is no tombstone, no grave, no cross, no Roman soldier, big enough and strong enough to stop the work of Jesus Christ. He was not bound in that tomb by a big stone, but by his willingness to give his life. And so he came out in power, but then came the people and they needed to see that he was really alive. They needed to know that this wasn't just the report of soldiers or of some of his closest friends. And so the angel came to a tomb with a stone in front of it and he rolled the stone away so people could say, he's not here, he's risen. The same thing has to happen to each of us. It's not enough to say there's a tomb. He died as he lived and he was buried. We've got to have the vision to look into the tomb and to say, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's not in the grave, he's alive. And I think that means we both have to believe that and we have to live like it. And I think knowing this group, we all believe it. Every one of us knows that just as surely as this tomb is empty, Jesus' tomb is empty. We know that. The stone has been rolled away. But you know what? You're going to meet a lot of people in your life for whom the stone is still there. They have not discovered that Jesus is alive. And as far as they're concerned, when he died, he's still in the tomb. And your mission and mine becomes to be an instrument of God to roll away the stone so that those people too can see that it's empty. Sometimes we live like he's still in there. We live as if his power is not really real. We act in our Christian life as if the power of Jesus Christ, which raised him from the dead, which God offers to us, is not really available. And I think God says, you've got roll the stone away. You've got to come in your mind to the tomb and you need to look in and you need to say, he is alive. And that power is real, it's not pretend it's available for me. I'd just like to have you reflect on the fact that everything God did in this land, everything that he's challenged you to do is made possible by what this place represents. It is only through the blood of Jesus that anything that God asks of us can be accomplished. And so I ask you for yourself, is Jesus Christ the risen Lord of your life? As he is of mine. Back at the time of Jesus, when a young man wanted to be married he and his father would go to a young woman's house that they thought was appropriate to be his wife and they would sit together with the young woman and her father just the four of them and they would negotiate this new marriage and as part of the negotiation they would decide on what was called the bride price and the young woman's father would ask a great deal of money or of physical things for his daughter, because she was a very, very valuable possession. When at last they had decided on the price, and it's fair to say that the price that was paid for a bride would rival what you would pay for a new home, the young man's father would pour a cup of wine and hand it to his son. The son would take the cup and hold the wine out to the young girl and say to her, this cup I offer to you. In other words, I love you, and I offer you my life. At that moment, the young woman had a moment of decision. She could say, no, I don't want to take that offer. I don't want your life. Or she could take the cup, and she could lift it to her mouth, and by drinking it, say, I accept your life, and I give you mine. On a hill not very far from here, Jesus and his disciples sat down for the Passover. In the Passover celebration of the time, there are four cups of wine at different points that they drink. The third cup, called the cup of redemption, the cup of salvation, is given near the end of the Passover celebration, and the cup is lifted and the host of the passover says a brief prayer over the cup blessed are you O lord king of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine and then he gives it to the people to drink either out of his cup or out of theirs jesus sat in that upper room very close to here he came to the cup of salvation And the bible says he took the cup and when he had given thanks blessed are you god king of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. He said to them, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And in the middle of his Passover liturgy, suddenly, completely out of the norm, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I love you. Will you marry me? Will you be my spiritual bride. He holds up the cup and he says, Drink from it, all of you. Now, Jesus comes to you today through the symbol of what we call sacrament. Nothing more than God's promise, God's guarantee. And Jesus says to you, I love you. I love you. Will you marry me? (laughs) I've often thought when the minister takes the cup and holds it up and says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. I always knew that was a serious moment. I never realized how incredibly personal that God looks down at that moment and he looks at you and you and you and you and he looks at me and he says, I love you. Do you know what I never realized? I never realized that when I take the cup and I drink it in effect, I'm saying to God, I accept your gift. I'll take your life. Maybe I could say often grooms paid very high prices for their brides. Not many of them thought when they offered the cup, they really would have to give their life. The price Jesus had to pay to be your husband spiritually was so high that not a half a mile from here, he said, please let this cup pass from me. That's how high that price was. Now he says to you, I love you want to be your husband and as you take the cup you need to decide what you will do with that I never realized that for me to take the cup and to drink it was to say God I accept your gift and I give you my life in return if you remember we stood around an altar at Tel Arad One of the things we said on that bloodstone was after the blood of an offering was offered and God was reminded of his promise to forgive, then God in effect said, take the body of the animal home, sit out at your table, have a wonderful meal together as my family, and I'll join you. The Lord's Supper is like that. The elements represent the sacrifice of our lamb, the body and blood of Jesus. And in effect, having said, I kept God's
3: promise of the blood path, and I love you. I want to be your husband. He says now, I'd like to have dinner with you. Will you join me? to
1: First impressions, new thoughts, new new ways of looking at things from this one.
4: Obviously the
1: communion cut. Yeah, I'm. I hadn't heard. I not hadn't, hadn't heard that context of, uh, of it being part of a proposal before. I'm pretty sure if I'd given Danielle a cup instead of a diamond ring, it would have ended up in my face though. <laughs>
2: the, uh, the, the picture of having communion in the center and regularly, at least on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, how can that not be more important than Well, I'm not saying it's not, but more important than some lesson you and I put or someone who hired Eddie or someone to do a good job teaching us something, our minds and and inspiring us. This is a picture of sharing. And that meditation there, what we just saw would be great to see during communion. Well,
1: and that family aspect of having that together. Um, when I was in Lipscomb, Daniel and I both I got to go uh, both got to go several times to Australia on a mission trip. And one of the things that that church that we were working with did um, when they would pass out the bread for communion, everyone would hold it and then take it together. So they passed the trays up and down every aisle, and everybody breaks it. But they were it was a huge my first Sunday down there, it made it that, an impression on me. I mean, that's been quite a few years ago now. But that emphasis on hold it and we're going to take it together as a family. Um, it was um, a, a neat experience. I found it interesting, and I hadn't thought
5: about it before, but the fact that... It's a new tomb, so it's never been used, and the fact that it's being used makes it uh, unusable again.
1: Yeah, and, I that was a new one for me too. And the
5: uh, the cost that, that, uh, that Joseph paid for that that final
6: gift. Yeah.
7: Never looked at it the way that away. the angel rolled the stone away it wasn't to let Jesus out, but was <laughs> to let the others in. Yes, see that he was not there. His appearance is he went
2: into a closed rock building. Some people would think he just came out of the, out of the tomb without having to roll the stone away. that supposition he has,
5: I guess. Well he did manage to walk um, into the uh, into the room where yes, that was meeting without opening the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that stone would be a problem.
1: Well and how <laughs> powerful was that seeing him risen that you've got I guess eleven guys at that point that were scared to death and hiding. And Peter's borderline, if not cussing guys out. and I don't know him. And then they see him risen, and now all of a sudden they're telling the world. It certainly had an impact on them.
7: Dying because of- yeah,
1: yeah. Tradition, tradition tells us they had some. Several of them had gruesome, gruesome ends. I think it was Peter that told him to crucify, at least by tradition, told him to crucify him upside down because he wasn't fit to be crucified like his Lord. Y'all may have all made the connection before I hadn't um, of the 3 p.m. sacrifice. Y'all are smarter than I am, so y'all probably have made that one. But. <coughs> Any other impressions before we get into Ray's questions?
5: Well, yeah, I had not thought of that until we heard him in person at Focus on the Family. And uh, he emphasized there that uh, Jesus was on the cross at 9 a.m., which was the time of the morning sacrifice. So not one, but two. So from 9 to 3, from the morning sacrifice to the evening sacrifice.
1: That's a long time.
5: But for crucifixion victims... It was not as long as most. Yeah. But there's like the symbolism is there.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I like about every one of his series that I've seen. He brings out that symbolism that probably to a first century audience would have been um, uh, more obvious, but that being as far removed from Practicing Jewish faith, obviously as I am, um, it's neat to see the way he can bring that that stuff out, um, and every time he brings out new layers.
4: Did, did anyone uh, else notice the? Of course, this video was made about 30 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, 25, 30. But did mm-hmm. anyone else mm-hmm. notice the young Franklin Graham look-alike uh, in? in as the camera fan, crap. Mm. the only one. Yeah. Yeah.
7: Guys. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> they won't validate me at <laughs> <laughs> all. You're on your own here. I'm too young, <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't even know who Franklin Graham is. <laughs> 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 I do. I I do. do. <laughs> So, um, in what ways might you view the death and resurrection of Jesus as the defining event in the New Testament?
5: Well, I think
6: it's the resurrection that is, is where the power is, but you have to have death mm-hmm. uh, before resurrection.
1: Yes, sir.
5: It's the completion of God's promise uh, throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, especially in, in the prophets, and and certainly in the uh, the uh, covenant with uh, with Abraham. But it's it's that this is the define. This is it. This is what I'm what I'm giving you. And he did a good good job along the lines of of looking at that short instant in time with the with, uh, with the bride for one and then uh, with the uh, uh, with, what he, with the resurrection on the other side of it. But, yeah, it's the center of everything.
1: It's the point. It's oh, what yeah. everything from in the beginning until then is pointing now.
5: Yeah. It's as, as, as uh, Paul had said, "If there is no resurrection of the dead, indeed the most miserable of people." Uh, but there is, and Jesus has shown the way, and uh, He has been resurrected. So,
4: uh, in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen, where that's talking about, it says, "If there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness." And uh, how many? I, I think we under understate so many of our prayers and in communion. Uh, we hear prayers thanking God for the death of His Son on the cross for our sins. And then, then the prayer moves on to one of other, other comments for Thanksgiving, but the most left out thing is the resurrection. Because that is where God demonstrated His power to defeat Satan, to, to defeat Satan's greatest weapon, to show that God is God and supernatural. And it was the motivation and the propellant of the first century church to go face death, mm-hmm. their conviction of their own resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's huge. It's the thing.
6: How was... The resurrection
4: of Christ different from that of Lazarus. <clears throat> Lazarus died again. Lazarus yeah. The
1: Lazarus was brought back to life. Yeah. Well, and Lazarus wasn't perfect before he died.
4: And both were done by God's power. And not yep. Both were done by God, but Lazarus had no power to do it.
1: Well, only a perfect and blameless sacrifice would have been acceptable and Lazarus wasn't perfect and blameless.
4: Well, Jesus raised several people. Yeah. Jairus' daughter and others.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: The other thing it's
5: important to remember is that all those others died. Mm -hmm. They're no longer here. But Jesus did not die. Mm -hmm. He was raised Mm -hmm. and still lives. He did that.
1: Not a second time, I think, not so what you're
5: second, But uh, it, in all of them, after their death and their burial, and even those that were resurrected, they later on died. Mm-hmm. Jesus, did not, after his resurrection, did not die.
6: He was ascended. That was the key.
2: It's it. interesting. Uh, several years we've done where you read through the Bible, you read it through in a year, and uh, A person can you know, here we go, we're kind of level, but when you get to the Gospels, they're unique, I think, in that how would you write, they're not biographies, Mm -hmm. you write the last one week of a person's life, it takes up one third and one Mm -hmm. event of the event. So it's rather than level, the Bible, we should think of the cross and the resurrection as as a great... We, the fall, and then that's God overcoming all, fulfilling everything in the past. And mm-hmm. from, from the eye of the cross, we can go back and understand that, mm-hmm. all the history of the past and also looking forward to the future is, uh, and the resurrection. You know, that Matthew 20, all authority has been given me in heaven and earth you know Dallas Willard made a little point in his great he said a lot of people they love Jesus say he sacrificed but he said how many people have you ever heard say you know Jesus was my expert he's the one he's, he is the one who knows about life and people tend to think of him as either a baby uh, sacrifice but he's all, you know, he has all authority and he said I'll be with you said, so the picture there is not him off in heaven sitting waiting for us to do pretty good if we can yeah.
1: I believe it was in one of the um, one of the lessons we did back in February, March whenever the last time I was in here uh, when we did the first half of this series um, Ray pointed out the symbolism that you know the, the sacrifice the scapegoat was taken outside of the city and cut loose and Jesus was taken outside of the city to be crucified um, just another, one more layer of that uh, symbolism. Looking back, and we're going to look in a minute at some of the prophecies, but looking back um, to the Old Testament, um, that in the in the crucifixion. So, how does Jesus want us to respond? To his offer of
6: salvation. Yes, sir. Well, it strikes me a little bit, that uh, Christ asked that we partake of that symbol, that uh, cup and bread, <clears throat> on a 2 basis. So he's given us the opportunity to be his bride, the church on a weekly basis to say, I accept you, I give my life to you. Which I think he knew that we needed to remember that and we needed to make the commitment because if we, uh, if we did it just once, I mean, if you look at what Ray had on the series here, even his own disciples, he was symbolically asking them to follow him and trust in him and give their lives to him. And just hours later, they desert, they forsake, they say they don't know him, they hide, but he didn't give up on them just like he doesn't give up on us. And later, he told them to do this in remembrance of me. So Christ doesn't give up on us. He knows our frailty and he knows that we need to recommit to him. And it's a, it's a good thing for us as Christians to have that opportunity to do that.
1: Okay. Yeah, most of y'all in here have been married longer than I have. Um, how, successfully, how successful would you be with that if... You told your wife, your husband, you love them on your wedding day and then didn't say it again. Probably not gonna go over well.
2: If my mind, let you know.
7: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yes ma'am. This
7: past year I was able to be involved with a young man in Zambia who, we helped him pay the bride price, because that still goes on in many parts of Africa. He is a village boy, and he was handicapped. He lost a leg with a cobra bite. So his earnings would have been less than hundred dollars a month as a teacher, and for him to pay, the bride price was to buy a cow or two. And I can't—I don't know how much the cow cost, but I know that it was equal to a year's year of pay. The bride price was almost a year of pay. He never ever expected to be able to get married because he never expected to be able to pay that right price. And when I met when I was with him this summer, what I realized was she never expected to get married either because she never, because she was a village girl. And so what happened? And so the joy they had in their marriage wasn't just that they found someone to love each other, but that. They were that bride price was able to be paid, and I think if we come to that, because it's almost like I, I kind of have been taught about Jesus dying for me my whole life. So it's almost like, well, of course He did because He said He. Because I've known that, but if I can come at that with a, with an expect with an ex, I came up with an expectation instead of a. Wow. I never expected to see such love. That mm-hmm. not only did he love me, he paid the
1: price, the right price for me. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a John Muir fan to the point that when our son was born, um, we went to the hospital with me threatening to name him John Muir. Um, we ended up naming him John Burton instead. Burton's was my grandfather's middle name. But... Um, in his travels in Alaska, he tells a story, um, John, uh, John Muir traveled with a Presbyterian missionary out to a lot of the native villages around southeastern Alaska. And everywhere they went, when you say the saved died, uh, it's such a foreign concept to people who don't grow up in the church, who don't grow up Christian, or at least hearing that, that it was a stumbling block until they got to one village. And apparently, this village, at some time past—I don't know how long it had been—the two, this village and their neighboring village, had been in a war all spring and summer. It's getting late summer, and in Alaska, at that point, you don't have king supers to go to get food. You got to put it up. Well, no one could go out and gather food because they were scared that, you know, this other other village they've been fighting with was going to kill them. Uh, so. One chief walked out and called to the other chief that came out and met me and he said, hey, this is stupid. It's, it's time to be putting up stuff or neither one of our villages are going to survive the winter. We need to call this off. The second chief said, yeah, of course you'd say that. You're 5'10", you're whatever it was, people ahead. You've pulled five or ten more of my people than we have of your people, so of course you want to call it off. The sticking chief, the first guy said, you know who I am. You know what I'm worth. I'm worth more than that any normal people kill me and let us call it off and that's what they did they called it off and then John Muir said when they went to that village those two villages right there together the people there bought it because they had seen it happen Um, they had seen in their life that sacrifice Uh, and like I say I don't I don't remember all the details I don't know if they had seen it personally or if it was just part of that history shared history of those two villages um, but when they got there, uh, instead of uh, a savior who gives himself as a sacrifice being a stumbling block like it was to, and still is to many, um, to them it was, yeah, we've seen it, we believe it. But anyway, it's one of my uh, very, very favorite um, sections of, of his writing. Okay, so we are going to, uh, this next section is looking at some of the Old Testament prophecies um, and we'll compare uh, the Old Testament prophecy to the, um, to the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. So the first, one, uh, first um, deal we'll look at is Psalm twenty two sixteen through 18. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then the comparison is John nineteen twenty-three through 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. And then also Mark 15, 25 through 32. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him i would just like to say jesus obviously had a lot more patience and love for people than i do because if i had the power that he had in that situation somebody would be getting it <laughs> but uh, anyway he was very dedicated to finishing his mission but, so what did the soldiers do to jesus
6: The cast lots for his clothes. Mm-hmm. Still and postponed. Yep.
1: Stuck him inside with a spear. Well, and that psalm said that people were going to stand around him from the time that they were flogging him and putting the crown of thorns. He's in a crowd this whole way being mocked at every every step of it. So the next uh, next one we'll look at is Psalm 3420. verse wasn't making sense i was looking in job not psalm he protects all of his bones not one of them will be broken and then zechariah 12:10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So the question here is, and it compares it to the John nineteen thirty-two through 34 that we, oh no, we read 23 through 24. So John 19, 32
7: through
1: 34. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So what exception was made in Jesus' case? Yep. And he was pierced.
6: that has confounded me in trying to understand the difficulty some have in in the baptism. If in the baptism we are buried Uh with Christ, I ask the question, where was the blood shed? In the death and burial. If you cannot, if you believe that the blood is necessary for salvation how can you argue with the question of, of baptism because that's where, we, that's where you come to, the blood well and that
1: was one of the things that came out in the Leviticus sermon series The blood was a very necessary part yeah, I would say probably with this audience you're preaching to the choir on baptism. I
6: think so. But,
1: yeah, it, it is absolutely, absolutely.
2: The Hebrew picture of him bringing his blood to the Father or offering his sacrifice, his own blood, he doesn't have to do a repeated sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He fulfills the sacrifice. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: looks like we've got one minute that's probably not enough time to go into the next section so thank you for being here tonight see you next week hey I'm Eddie White the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us.
5: And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.